Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Preachers often adapt themes from popular books and movies to make their sermons seem relevant for children and teens. But what happens when the content of the Bible is so nuanced that even C.S. Lewis can't capture it in a popular story? What happens when popular Christian themes are out of step with biblical meaning? Is the Bible still relevant? Can it still capture the attention of young adults? Of course it can, and maybe even especially for those who have ears to hear. All of us at the Bible as Literature podcast wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. May the Lord extend your table to include those who would otherwise be left alone during this special season. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 45 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week I was reading Narnia to my children. And we came to the scene where Aslan brought the girls with him to the witch's castle after he came back from the dead, after having been executed on the stone table, after having taken the place of Edmund because of his foolish treachery. But he was back, and he was going to save all of the people who had been turned to stone by the evil character, the White Witch. And just as I was reading this to my children, my daughter looked up at me and said, Papa, why did Uncle Richard say that C.S. Lewis was wrong? What was he wrong about? And of course, last Sunday you mentioned in your sermon that C.S. Lewis got it wrong What did you mean so that I can go back and answer my child? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm really happy that she remembered what I said during the sermon. So that's already good news. By the way, she's nine years old. So, I mean, for heaven's sake, people, don't assume that children aren't paying attention in church anyways. Exactly. I was talking about in Ephesians 2, the wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile. And, you know, the thing is we have to understand that Nowadays, we think, oh, we're all people. Some of us are Jews and some of us Gentiles. But in the Roman Empire, there was a real legal distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There was a real understanding that there was a difference between these peoples, that there was a different history and different customs that made them different. You didn't just become one or become the other and go back and forth or whatever. If you were going to become one or the other, then it really was a wall of separation. Well, and that wall of separation, I think in the American mindset, we imagine that wall doesn't exist. But if you're an undocumented immigrant worker, if you are are living in a foreign country that is experiencing difficulty with a Western country, those distinctions, those legal distinctions in which one person is treated differently under the law than another are very real still in the modern world. I mean, I just read an article about the millions of slaves that still exist in the modern West. So I, I want to point out that 
while we don't think that these distinctions exist, they're very real, which makes Paul's comment about the wall of enmity all the more urgent in our context. Yeah, and I think another example of this, if you're familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, you know, when his daughter decides that she's going to marry a Gentile, that's it, she's dead. So I started thinking about this, and in Ephesians 2, it says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin. What's interesting is he's talking to people and saying, you were dead. Okay, now these people, obviously, if he's talking to them now, were not literally dead. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about being dead to sin. It means that by being a servant of the one who brings death, you are as good as dead. So in this passage, he's talking about how you moved from one to the other. You were dead and you are now alive. But what does this mean, you're dead and now alive through Christ? And the thing is, is that oftentimes it's depicted almost as magic that God has this magic cross wand and he goes and he touches dead people and all of a sudden they're alive again. Which is how it functions in Narnia. This is what happens in Narnia. It's the breath, but whatever. It's the, it's, it's the same kind of magical thinking that it just happens. But there's something that really is happening here that's not magical that Paul is trying to describe here that he removed this wall of separation. So if you imagine you have a basin with a divider in it, on one side you have blue water, and on the other side you have clear water, the Gentiles are blue. So how does he make the blue clear? How does he make the clear blue? He removes it and everyone's the same. That's what happened. By Christ dying on the cross, he showed that whatever category Whatever law you have that distinguishes one person from another, one person legally is sentenced to death and is on the cross, another person legally is Caesar, right? You have legal distinctions among people. But what Paul is trying to say is that all of them are consigned to death. All of them are as good as dead. All of them are dead. And the only way that one lives is through the grace of God, God the Father, who just says there is no distinction anymore. He says, Jesus, you're alive now. That's it, like that's all it takes. It's just the fiat of God. And it's not magical. It's that God makes the decision that now they're the same. Jew and Gentile are now the same. Alive and dead are now the same. And so there isn't a distinction between the two. So imagining this is very difficult because we think of the dead as something completely different from us, but then in our imagination, we want to imagine a place where alive people, us, intermingle with dead people, and we have a heaven where they're all kind of the same thing. But what he's actually doing is he's saying there is no difference. You were already dead. So if you were already dead, what's the difference between you and the dead people? Nothing. Well, this is the post-apocalyptic view of scripture. You know, Scripture can look at the temple in Mark chapter 13 and say every stone will be torn down because every stone sooner or later will be torn down. Exactly. So we imagine somehow that we're different than those who have gone before us, but we're not. Just like the Jew imagines he's different than a Gentile, just like the American imagines he's different than a Muslim from the Middle East. I think that the nuance here is that the continuation of life according to God's Scripture is possible only when the wall of enmity is torn down and people no longer see the world with these distinctions. So 
now coming full circle with C.S. Lewis and Aslan, what's going on that is problematic in the Narnia story? So what happens there is that all the people were alive and Aslan goes and takes the dead people and makes them more like the alive people, people like us. But in fact, what God does is he says, there is no difference between stone people and flesh people. They're now the same. Simply by declaring it, now they're the same. Now, for us, this is a logical impossibility. It would not make a good story, so I don't want to ruin C.S. Lewis because it would be a lousy story to say, see, now they're all the same, and everyone would say, no, I don't see how they're well, the same. Well, he would have had to choose a different metaphor than stone creatures. It would have been a much more complex story to try to express this concept. Right, and you know, this is where Paul, like we've said but before... But maybe that's, the, for, forgive me, maybe that's the miss on his part, that in trying to convey the biblical narrative in the way that he did, maybe he lost some of the most important nuance surrounding the resurrection. Well, and I think this does happen because I think that oftentimes as Christians, we think that now we're in the post-salvation state, right? and now we just need to bring those people in the pre-salvation state into the post-salvation state. And as long as we do that, then now we can all be together. Now they can come to us. Right. And that's the thing, is that what it does is says that the people in flesh are fine as long as they don't betray Aslan. But the people who are stone, Aslan has to save. But in reality, the Lord has to save everybody. everybody everyone that's is the key. Everyone is stone. So inadvertently, inadvertently, what he's doing is building another framework of self-righteousness. Right. Because now the ones who didn't get captured by the witch or who managed to stay in Aslan's camp or to whatever, are, we're somehow better off. And that's incorrect. Right. We're all stone. We're all dead to trespass and sin. We're all consigned to death. And yes, it says, I think it's interesting in Ephesians 2, Paul says, you are in the commonwealth of Israel. It's interesting that he says that, that it's like a country. He's not making it an extraordinary category. Okay, you weren't with these people, Israel. But now there's no difference, so it doesn't matter anymore anyway. So what he's saying is that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There is no difference even between the living and the dead. And this is what I think is interesting, how easy it is to overlook this. When we look at the icon of the resurrection, there's Jesus, he's alive, and, and Adam and Eve, they're alive, and, and all those great people now, they're just as alive as we are, right? But why is it that we depict those ones as like us? We're depicting those dead people as if they're like us, alive people. And we're not seeing that, that wall between the living and the dead, which in our mind is completely solid and impenetrable, that this has now been broken down. The line even between stone people and flesh people is broken down. Now there is no more difference. And this is what I think is very unintuitive. Well, it's unintuitive because it can't be depicted. It defies depiction. Right. It's an iconoclastic metaphor at its heart. How do you say that God gives life to the dead without drawing a distinction or somehow elevating the status of those who in human terms are still alive, but in scriptural terms are already gone. I mean, the post-apocalyptic nuance is very difficult for people to understand. I mean, when scripture talks about the destruction of cities, everyone gets defensive. All it's doing is stating a scientific fact that what goes up must come down. Right. 
this is, uh, anyways, it's a difficult concept for people. Simple, but difficult to really embrace. Right. And so, you know, when we think about the Paschal Troparian, upon those in the tombs bestowing life, everyone is in the tomb. Right. He's not bestowing life to those who are dead. Thank goodness we're not them yet. No, he's bestowing life upon every single well, human. That's the trick, right? You know, the gospel lectionary assigns different readings for the funeral uh, service in the Eastern Church. But my favorite is the text from John, where the gospel proclaims to the assembly, the dead shall hear the voice of God and live. And I always tell those gathered that your mistake is that you think the gospel is referring to your friend who's lying in the casket here. No, the gospel is saying that your friend lying in the casket, if his life is to bear witness to something life-giving, right, his death will cause you to recognize that you are dead. And at his funeral, you are hearing the word of God and you are being lifted out of your darkness and out of a, a way, a path that leads nowhere. It leads to destruction. Right. And I think that's interesting in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Tumnus, who is made fleshly again, is very grateful to Aslan for having done that. But Peter, what does he have to be grateful for? He was never stoned. This is the problem. We have to remember that we are all stoned. Otherwise, we forget that the grace has been given to all and is an opportunity for everyone. And if we don't recognize that and we don't recognize the grace, then we don't function according to the grace. And if we don't function according to the grace, then we will see a distinction between one person and the other person. And you're building up the wall of enmity. You're building up the wall of enmity, just like the arrogant man before the story of the Good Samaritan, who says, who is my neighbor? Because he's asking the question, well, Obviously not everybody's my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor and who isn't my neighbor? Because we need to definitely whittle this list down because if I have to love every single person as myself, I don't have time and therefore I won't be able to check everybody off my list. Only Santa can do that. (laughs) So his self-righteousness causes him to see a distinction between those he must love and those he must not love. But as you said in the sermon, you always make this point, Jesus turns the question around at the end. Right. Who was neighbor to that man? Who is the person that I need to give life to and who is the person I don't need to? The thing is that if you want to have life yourself, this is the question. Do you want to have life? Because if you want to have life, then you must understand that the line between neighbor and non-neighbor is broken down. And the only line between neighbor and non-neighbor is in your own mind, whether you decide to act according to the grace or to reject the grace. So you can't be reactive to your neighbor. You can't categorize your neighbor. You have to be proactive to anyone in your path and treat them as though they're your neighbor. Because you realize that you were dead and were given life. And because of this, and being grateful for the life that you've been given, then this is what causes you to act according to grace. So I think another way to sum this up for our listeners There's no difference between you and a tax collector. There's no difference between you and a prostitute or a slave or a person of the opposite gender or a person of another religion or from another group or from another nation. And the gospel pushes it as far as it can to the point that Paul would say in Ephesians, there's no difference between you and a dead person. 
Okay. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Great, Thank you very much. Great honor you this week. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.